Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 8th, 2010. And as promised, I will not be discussing Lindsay Lohan's uh, jail sentence. I just, those of you who were tuning in to uh, get my take on Lindsay Lohan's jail sentence. I, I'm sorry, but I must respectfully decline, and you'll have to get commentary on that someplace else. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically to help you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, we live in a day where some of the greatest enemies of the Christian faith exist within the visible church. And uh, they are having a profound influence upon pastors and church leaders. And uh, one of the reasons why we do what we do here is so that they can be, well, answered. It, they need to be answered and need to be answered biblically because... Uh, these men are rogues. These men are wolves in sheep's clothing, and they're not doing God's work. They're doing the devil's work. When they impugn, malign, attack, undermine God's word and Christ's gospel. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why we do what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. <sighs> Hot day today. Um, Central Indiana, apparently uh, in the middle of the summer, is capable of like mid-90s with like 100% humidity, and you walk out in that, especially if you're overweight, you feel like you're being broiled alive. Just want to let everybody know that I <laughs> got to experience uh, that particular experience because, you know, experiences are very important. And uh, and then, of course, today we had a big thunderstorm roll through, too. It's just weather here is is rather interesting. Hang around for five minutes and it changes. Okay, today's edition... Of fighting for the faith. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, yesterday, we didn't get a chance to get to uh, that piece that I wanted to, talking about what is the kingdom of God. We hear that term being kicked around like a soccer ball nowadays, and or, or football if you're from Europe. Um, well, actually, it's football if you're anywhere except for the United States, and it's soccer ball if you live in the United States because, well, we have to have a different name for it because we're special. Anyway, um, it's getting kicked around like a ball, just put it that way. And um, 
And I think it's important to kind of go back and explore this concept of what is the kingdom of God. I found a great article in the uh, Lutheran Study Bible, uh, the one put out by Concordia Publishing House, not the um, the um, ELCA folk. Yeah, you might want to avoid that one. Anyway, so we're going to take a look at what what is the kingdom of God. And then we got an article from the Huffington Post uh, that says that God can be experienced, but he cannot be explained. Well, in fact, it didn't use the masculine pronoun. Let me reread the headline. God can be explained, not, uh, sorry, God can be experienced, not explained. It didn't say he. I apologize for you folks over there at the Huffington Post. I understand the idea of God being masculine and, you know, and masculine pronouns being attached to God and and terms like father and stuff like that in reference to God uh, really causes you to get upset and and, and, uh, bent out of shape because that's so politically correct, even though it's biblical. But uh, we're going to be taking a look at that uh, little article put out by the Huffington Post. And then in the um, second half of the first hour here, I'm going to be interviewing, uh, playing an interview that I recorded earlier with Scott Keith of the Wittenberg Institute. I I've told people that I'm working on my second master's, and and that's truly the case. And uh, th- I'm working on more than that, but I'm not ready to divulge all the details of uh, uh, the other degree that I'm working on. But uh, anyway, Scott Keith of the Wittenberg Institute, he's the dean there, and I'm and I and I'm interviewing him because I want to introduce you all to the Wittenberg Institute. They've it's a brand new educational institution. Uh, Lutheran educational institution and, um, Dr. Rosenblatt, my mentor is, uh, one of the, uh, primary faculty, uh, members there and, uh, one of the academic fellows at the, uh, Wittenberg Institute. And, um, I think it's important for you all to be introduced to the Wittenberg Institute and what they're doing and how what they're doing can make a difference in turning the tide against the false doctrine, heresy, and, and just complete liberal downgrade. Uh, that is uh, that is well taken over many sectors of uh, Lutheranism, and uh, and so I, I'm going to be interviewing him regarding the Wittenberg Institute and their mission. And then in the second hour, it's not a, a sermon that I'm going to be uh, reviewing. However, um, it, it is a bad lecture uh, from Tim uh, uh, from Tim Keel. He's an emergent fellow, and there's a I don't know if you're familiar with Scott Kinneman. And Gabe Lyons, Gabe Lyons in particular, this is a guy who, uh, folks, if you if you know anybody who's reading books and being influenced by Gabe Lyons, you need to have a conversation with him. This guy hates biblical Christianity. That's the only way I can explain it. He hates it. And um, anyway, uh, he's uh, an instrumental figure in uh, in what are called Q talks. Uh, if you if you're all familiar with uh, TED Talks, uh, that you know that's a very famous thing that happens up in the Bay Area um, on an annual basis, and people are invited to come and give like 20 minute talks on like majorly in you know cool things, the things that they're working on. And uh, and uh, Kinnaman and Lyons have had these things called Q Talks, and they're trying to mimic the uh, the TED Talks, and so. Um, in, at one of the recent Q Talk events, uh, an emergent pastor by the name of Tim Keel g- gave a lecture entitled "The Gospel Revisited." The Gospel Revisited. Y'all need to hear this. Um, I mean, th- it's it's gotten really, really, really bad. And what's interesting is <clears throat> Rick Warren um, has uh, he was invited to speak at a Q Talk not too long ago, and. 
Um, he uh, <clears throat> seems to fit right in, and so uh, I uh, I'm going to be playing Tim Keel's um, and reviewing it, uh, the Gospel Revisited. Why? Because Scripture is clear. The Apostle Paul, writing under under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, said. Even if we, that would be the Apostle Paul and those who planted the churches in Galatia, or an angel from heaven, even if we or an angel from heaven preaches to you a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be anathema. Well, Tim Keel is calling for a flat-out uh, reevaluation and revisiting of the gospel, and wait till you hear... Um, what he thinks is important uh, in, re- you know, what's the primary thing we should be doing when we're revisiting the gospel. So you're going to want to uh, take a listen to that. So with all of that, let's uh, dive into the program proper. Please feel free to make yourself comfortable. If you're exercising, that's great. Kick up your heels. Fuzzy bunny slippers if it's not too hot in your neck of the woods. For instance, if you're in Houston, uh, down in the Gulf states, if you're down in, uh, if you're in central Indiana, fuzzy bunny slippers would just... Well, it, it'd be a, as bad as waterboarding. Um, so yeah, don't do, don't put, be putting those on right now. And, you know, in fact, I'm absolutely convinced that, uh, you know, those, uh, <clears throat> Islamic, uh, terrorists that, uh, we've got, uh, locked up. If we really wanted to torture them and get them to talk, you know, forget waterboarding, just put fuzzy bunny slippers on them on a hot day. <sighs> All right. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And I don't have any music. For this segment. So what I'm going to do is just ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? I mean, we hear this term being kicked around constantly. And, uh, you know, the way um, the emergence and the neoliberals, uh, the neoprogressives, which is probably a good way to put it, um, the neoprogressive liberals that have taken over the emergent wing uh, basically all of the left wing of uh, uh, theological so called Christianity. I mean, they talk about the kingdom of God in such a way that the, it make, basically makes you go, uh, that sounds like uh, some Hegelian Marxist utopian society. You know, we, the kingdom of God is something we create here on earth. We've got to go find where God is working and, and jump in and, you know, and, and be a part of that. Help, to help, help God realize his dream for the world. And his dream for the world, well, is the kingdom of God. And, and of course, there's process theology going on in this is that, you know, that God doesn't really know the future and uh, and that it's all unfolding and it's you know, it's going to be a big shock to him as well as to us <clears throat> that's not the kingdom of god um i read from an article in the uh, lutheran study bible entitled longing for a kingdom what is the kingdom of god christianity christianity may speak about the kingdom of god in a variety of ways first God rules the universe and everything that's in it, including the affairs of humanity. Read Psalm 66, verse 7, or Daniel 5, 21. Second, we also use the phrase kingdom of God to refer to the time after the resurrection of the dead when God rules without opposition. Okay, so we could talk about how God rules the universe, the stars, and all that kind of stuff. And then secondly, we can talk about the kingdom of God referring to the time after Christ's return in glory to judge the living and the dead, and uh, we are resurrected, and God, and you know, Christ really reigns uh, without opposition. Uh, kingdom come, uh, some say, uh, you know, for instance, see Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Now, we give thanks to God for his powerful rule over all of the world, and we pray for the advent of his glorious victory on the last day, but 
When the Bible refers to the kingdom of God, it usually has a different definition in mind. As Jeffrey Gibbs explains uh, for the gospel according to Matthew, the kingdom of God is God's righteous reign. To speak of a reign is to imply that a king is present to act as such, to reign. If the reign of heaven or God stands near, then the God of heaven has come down to reign to perform his kingly deeds. Thus, the reign of God is not primarily a place. Rather, it is a divine action that occurs where Jesus is through his words and deeds. Nor is the reign of heaven a group of people. Rather, because the God of heaven has begun to manifest his kingly deeds, a group of people are constituted as those who believe in God's reign in Jesus. Now, kingdom of God in the Old Testament. Now, although the uh, the phrase kingdom of God does not appear in the Old Testament, the Lord is called a king and a ruler. See Psalm uh, 47 verse 2 or 95 verse 3 or Malachi chapter 1 for, uh, verse 14. When God called Abraham, he promised to bless him and to bless all the people of the earth through him. And Abraham believed him and God credited it to him as righteousness, granting Abraham a right status with God through faith alone. Through faith, Abraham and his family entered the kingdom of God, even though they had no land or earthly kingdom. Geography does not define the kingdom or the reign of God in either testament. The kingdom reign does take shape in the real world because it exists in the hearts and the minds of believers who inhabit earthly countries and kingdoms. Wherever Abraham traveled, there was the kingdom of God. His faith held on to the promise of a savior, a seed or offspring through whom all the world would be blessed. See Galatians chapter 3 verse 19. The kingdom of God in the Old Testament is received by people who believe this promise, just as in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God gathered his people together in the land of Israel. Nevertheless, the focus is always on God's work to create a kingdom of priests and a nation holy to the Lord, not on the land. One geographical place does, not, uh, does play a special role in the Old Testament reign of God, Mount Zion. Zion refers to the hill between uh, a tripe, uh, the, the Triopean and Kidron valleys in Jerusalem. It does not physically dominate the area, but it plays an important role in the history of God and his people because this is where Solomon built the temple. The temple at Zion represents God's gracious presence and the forgiveness of sins made possible by sacrifice and faith. See Isaiah chapter 59 verses 19 through 20 and then cross-reference that with Revelation chapter 14 verse 1. God reveals a new dimension when he promises David that one of his descendants will reign forever. David had wanted to build God a house or a temple, but God refused. Instead, God promised to build David a house, a dynasty, or a kingdom that would last forever, ruled by a descendant much greater than David himself. God's reign becomes focused on this coming king, the anointed one. Daniel sees this promised king in a vision. Several centuries later, the Spirit reveals to Daniel critical information about the kingdom of God and its ruler, a human being, one like a son of man, who judges with divine authority. 
This king will rule over a kingdom comprised of Gentiles as well as Israelites, individuals from all over the world brought together in faith. Jesus draws his favorite self-designation, Son of Man, from this passage in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, quoting it on trial before Caiaphas in Mark 14, verse 62. Now, the kingdom of God in the New Testament, the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven appears nearly 100 times in the New Testament. All but a few of the occurrences are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Between the time of Adam's fall, Genesis 3, 1 through 16, and the end of the world, Satan dominates the world. All people are born into Satan's kingdom and are by nature enemies of God and opposed to his kingdom. When God extends his kingdom, conflict and opposition ensue. The results are often dramatic, involving powerful displays of God's saving power, sometimes called signs because they point to Jesus as the promised Messiah. When God's reign overpowers Satan's, sick people are cured, handicapped people are made whole, demon-possessed individuals are freed, and even the dead are raised. These external signs point to the greater gift of God as he extends his rule, eternal salvation through saving faith in Jesus Christ. God opens his kingdom to all people, not just a few. Jew and Gentile, wealthy and poor, men and women, all are welcome into God's grace. Not all people enter the kingdom of God, however. Human pride and self-righteous attitudes block the work of the Spirit. Only after the law has stripped away all pretense of personal merit can a sinner come to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ the poor in spirit of the first beatitude. We enter the kingdom as helpless children. See Mark chapter 10, 13 through 16. Born anew by water and the spirit. John 3, 1 through 6. On the one hand, the kingdom of God is invisible. Saving faith in Jesus Christ cannot be seen by the natural, by the natural eye, nor can any human being look into the heart of another. Observers may be able to predict a change of weather by watching for certain signs, but the dynamic rule of God by grace through faith takes place within a person. On the other hand, believers live in the world and occupy space and time just like unbelievers. In this sense, God's kingdom is plainly visible because its citizens live in the world as living signposts pointing to Christ Jesus by what they say and by what they do. Luke closely connects the kingdom of God with the name of Jesus and his work. See Acts chapter 8 verse 12 or Acts chapter 28 verse 31. The Old Testament prophecies of a messianic king find fulfillment in Jesus, the eternal king promised to David. The pious longing of faithful Jews during the times between the Testaments likewise look forward to the coming of Jesus. During his ministry, Jesus confronts the rule of Satan and he overcomes it, binding Satan and ransacking his house and drawing people to faith in himself. Only Jesus, crucified for the sins of the world and raised again for the justification of sinners, can create the kingdom that leads to eternal life. Anchored in the cross of Christ, a past event, and actualized in the present through the proclamation of God's word and the administration of his sacraments, the kingdom of God also awaits its fulfillment in the visible return of Jesus Christ in glory. 
As the Messianic King vested with complete divine authority, Jesus Christ commissions his followers to make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. He promises to be with his people always, even to the end of the present age, to accomplish this purpose. Zion served in the Old Testament as a concrete picture for the reign of God. The church stands in the New Testament as the people through whom outreach and activity take place. Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom, the power of the forgiveness, through the proclamation and application of the gospel to his church, empowering them for the assigned task of making disciples. The reign of God continues to advance in the world through the work of the local congregation and the witness of every Christian. Wherever the gospel is preached and the story of Jesus is shared, the Holy Spirit works to expand the rule of grace through faith in God's Son. That is the kingdom of God. All right. Now, with <laughs> now to flip over to the quite opposite uh, end of the uh, spectrum, if you would, from something sane to something completely insane, I've got a story from the uh, Huffington Post. From the Huffington Post. Headline reads... God can be experienced, not explained. <clears throat> this is by Martha Woodruff, public radio contributor, and from her thing called Faith Unboxed. Oh, good night. This also, by the way, appears in the Washington Post. <clears throat> I read, As people of faith, should we concern ourselves with God's nature, relatives, ways, and history? Well, I, for one, think we should not. It seems to me that we can't really know anything about those subjects. If God is, then, well, God is beyond us. And claiming otherwise corrals the great uh, whatever within the confines of human language and intellect. This means that society's great chorus of conversation about, about God and all of our debate, all of our competing forms of worship, and all of our loud denials of God's existence is human humanity noisily getting above its raisin by attempting to demonstrate we know something about that which is unknowable. We know God only in the ch it changes our partnership with the Almighty makes in ourselves and our lives and through other people's accounts of similar changes in themselves and their lives. Oh, my there are a few things in life I find more difficult to accept or more, more uncomfortable to experience than not knowing about something, not knowing what's going on, what to expect, what to do, how to help, how to be right, how to stay safe, even what happened to Amelia Earhart. Has she really finally been found? Yet, as I see it, any recognition and acceptance of reality and obligation inherent in faith must include a recognition that God is now and shall ever remain unknowable. In other words, as a person living in partnership with the great whatever, I do not have to accept down to my painted toes that God is an inscrutable, ineffable, unknowable mystery. Furthermore, I may not allow religious language or practice to separate my recognition and acceptance that God is mystery from my recognition and acceptance of the rest of reality. Dandelions are yellow. Cement is hard. I will never be 40 again. God is mystery. My husband Charlie came 
with a blues collection. So it was uh, through him that I first heard the blues man, Lightning Hopkins, introduce himself this way. I am uh, the man that is the Lightning Hopkins. This, to me, means that Lightning Hopkins, according to Lightning Hopkins, is nothing comparable or understandable to anything other than Lightning Hopkins, i.e., once you start thinking about the man, you no longer get the man. Lightning Hopkins can only be experienced, not explained. Ditto. I would submit for the great whatever. Great whatever is apparently God. The mystery that is God is period. End of philosophy. End of theology. My relationship with the great whatever is an extra intellectual adventure. It is truly expressed only in my habit of being. Once we accept mystery's presence in our lives, once we give up any hope of understanding God in the way we understand other things, we have we have we also have to give up any hope of understanding the ways in which God works. We must accept that everything we or anyone else or have to say about the great whatever's nature, ways and motives is performance myth based. However, there's the rub for a lot of people who reject organized religion. Just because we can't understand God's nature, ways and motives doesn't make God any less and and available for partnership. I know from personal experience, is a fearsome leap for a lot of people, and not just the religious. One time, I was on a train traveling from Charlotte, Virginia, to the New York City, headed for the Book Expo to do a book signing for my first book. My take on how the 12 steps in my partnership with God had sent my addiction into remission. Behind me sat the dreaded uh, blowhard with a carrying voice and a doctor with whom the blowhard had just met and was trying to impress. I'm a reporter. I'm nosy. Since I couldn't read... I listened. Their conversation got around to the new drug therapies used to treat addiction. The doctor worked with smokers and was mystified by the the fact that some of them could quit and others couldn't. It made no sense to her, she said. Didn't uh, they know smoking would kill them? I took a deep breath and handed her my book without saying it was my book, just that it was a book on addiction, of which I had an extra copy. A few minutes later, the man handed it back to me, saying that he had no interest in it. When I reminded him that I'd actually given in, given it to the woman, all he said was, Oh, she's a doctor. She isn't interested either. When we finally got up for a few minutes, I asked the doctor about her take on addiction. She said she thought uh, being able to quit boiled down to the fact that some people either didn't really want to or just didn't have enough willpower to quit or that they weren't truly addicted in the first place. She didn't seem in the least curious to, uh, curious about how anything that defied the confines of scientific study might help addicts. Such things were to her irrelevant in the recovery process, and that was the end of it. I could en- emphasize, for I too had once firmly believed I could think and will my way around my own addictions. That, however, hadn't gotten me sober, and something else had. I've accepted that I will never be able to explain that something else, but I can still recognize it and name it God, by which I mean it's something inexplicable, unquantifiable, extra-human, as it were, that moves in me and in my life. I did wonder about the doctor's defensive incuriosity, why she was so uncomfortable with the possibility of mystery moving through another person's life. I would suggest that her denial of the possibility of mystery shares a common motivation with religion's explanations of it. We humans are flat-out fearful of sharing our lives with something we are drawn to that we can neither control nor explain. As for knowing God's history... It is so wrapped up in competing myths and mystery, moving through human history, competing religious writings, that appears to me damagingly detached from reality to claim the validity of one set of myths over another. 
What we can recognize from these writings is that humans have been seeking a working partnership with something greater than ourselves for as long as we've been around. Now it's your turn. What do you think? Well, I'm glad that you asked what I thought. Um, <clears throat> Martha, how do you know that you can't know anything about God? Isn't saying that you can't know anything about God knowing something about him? Seems to me self-defeating, doesn't it? And what if, what if God actually revealed something about himself to us using words? What if, you know, well, take a look at the gospel accounts, for instance. Um, the, there's four gospels in the, in the Christian New Testament, and all four of them claim to be biographies about a guy by the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, funny enough, claimed to be God in human flesh. And the people who hung out with Jesus for three years, you know, ate fish with him, you know, went basically traped all around the uh, Judean countryside, heard him preach, saw him perform miracles, and, and heard the things that he said about himself. They were pretty convinced that they could know those things that Jesus revealed about God. Because, well, there he was in the flesh. Don't you think it would be wise to check into the history there to see if maybe, just maybe, it's possible to know something about God? I mean, I want to know, where did you get this hard and fast rule that you can't possibly know anything about God? I mean, it just seems to be so arrogantly certain. But my question is, is that is this like the second law of thermodynamics? You know, the second law of thermodynamics talks about how, you know, energy, you know, it, we're basically we're experiencing heat loss and how things that are organized deteriorate into things that are unorganized and how the entire universe is pretty much going to stabilize at some really low temperature as, as, as the energy dissipates equally across the equilibrium. Yeah. Um, but see, the thing is, the second law of thermodynamics is, well, uh, law. You know, it's something that has come to be a law as a result of reproducible science. So here we've got this claim that you're making um, about God that he can't be known. And my question is, is where did you get this information? How did you come by this hard and fast rule that you can't know anything about God? I mean, was it written on stones somewhere at the top of a mountain in the Himalayas? Were you were you sitting in the lotus position, going, um, and then all of a sudden you had enlightenment strike you upside the head and you and you experienced nirvana and you realized the one law of the universe is that you can know nothing about God? Where did you get this idea? Can I test it? You know, what's funny, though, the people who experienced and witnessed the life of Jesus Christ, one of them was a guy by the name of the Apostle John. And in his biographical account of Jesus's life, here's what he says in the beginning of his biography. He says, now, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, 
that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks me before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, Well, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, Well, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes uh, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, Jesus coming forward said to him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, that's Jesus, God in human flesh. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, ironically, uh, Ms. Woodruff, if you would actually look at the historical accuracy and reliability of these biographies written in the New Testament, they're not mythologies. They're historical biographies. And they point to a true historical man, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the one true God in human flesh. And we can know all kinds of things about him because he's revealed them to us. And we find that according to Jesus uh, the God of the Old Testament, that's who he is, and that all was written all that was written about him in the in in the Torah and in the writings and, the, and in the prophets, the, Jesus said that that was all accurate information revealed from God to man, and that we can know who God is. So you know I again, I just asked the question, um, um, Martha, where where is this hard and fast rule? that you have discovered the spiritual law that says you can know nothing about God. I want to know where this is written. How do you know this? Because those who've actually had experiences with the one true God and their, and the fact that Jesus was the one true God was proven by the fact that he was raised again on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Those guys who experienced Jesus's life, God in human flesh, um, 
they've got some valid stuff backing it up, and that's the resurrection of Christ himself. Christ himself. I mean, and they knew they know things about God and the things that they've written about Jesus and God. They want us to know and know with certainty. The great mystery has decloaked. He's demystified himself, and we can know things about him. Now, do we know everything? Far from it. But what we know, we can know with certainty because he has revealed it to us. Now, if you have, if you can show me where it's written that we can know nothing about God and you can show me that this is an authoritative statement that I have to obey, that I must bend my knee to, well, then present the evidence, please. But barring any such evidence um, showing up until then, I'm going to trust the guys who truly did experience an encounter and witness God in human flesh. Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, we're up on our first break. When we get back, I'll be playing my interview with Scott Keith of the Wittenberg Institute. You don't want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-beater system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. 
Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR, or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if you think you can't know anything about God, then you need to prove it. Give me the evidence that I can't know anything about God. Where is this rule written? Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions. In order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will find two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. 
to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, that may not seem like a lot, but as that as our number of uh, crew members increases, then what that does is it levels out, it, 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 you know, our, it makes it so that it takes some of the peaks and valleys out of our monthly giving so that uh, we can meet our budgeted expenses month after month after month and continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, switching gears here, I'm going to play for you now an interview I did earlier with Scott Keith of the Wittenberg Institute. This is a uh, a brand new Lutheran higher education uh, organization, if you would, um, institution that I would like to introduce you to. And uh, I, I'm working on my second master's degree through them, so... Um, I'm a little bit biased, but I think they've got some great ideas and, and a great program. And are, it's different that what they're offering is different than what is uh, being offered in some other institutions. So here is my interview with Scott Keith. All right, on the line, I have uh, Scott Keith, who's the uh, dean of the Wittenberg Institute. This is a little bit of a different interview that I'm doing here at Fighting for the Faith. And the reason I've brought Scott on is because uh, the Wittenberg Institute is a brand new uh, Lutheran higher education uh, institution, and I think they have a unique way of doing things. And I wanted to uh, bring them on to basically introduce my listeners to a different way of uh, doing uh, Lutheran higher education. Uh, Scott, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so Wittenberg Institute. This is a completely new thing. At you know, why does why this institute? Why does it need to exist? What are you guys that's offering that uh, other Lutheran institutions uh, aren't offering? And and uh, let's talk about the Wittenberg Institute. Well, I guess maybe it'd be a good idea to begin with uh, why it needs to exist, and then perhaps we could roll into how how we came into being. Got it. Um. The reality of of higher education within the Lutheran church body, and I'm assuming the same is true in other church bodies, is that, is that it is almost cost prohibitive uh, for many candidates. Uh, the reality within the Lutheran church, if you'd like to be a pastor, you will do a four-year undergraduate degree and a four-year master's degree. That undergraduate degree is often done at one of our synodical schools, whether you're in the ELCA or in the LCMS. And the reality there is that the tuition at those schools is quite a bit more expensive than at, say, a state school, yeah. as as I think you experienced. You went to Concordia Irvine, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And so the re- students often come out of those undergraduate degrees with a significant amount of debt. Then they go into a Master of Divinity program where that debt increases year by year because of the tuition in those programs, which can exceed $20,000 per year. And if a candidate goes in with a family, it can go up to almost $45,000 per year. Uh, I know personally of students that come out of Lutheran seminaries with their undergraduate and postgraduate debt uh, totaling over $90,000. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how how much I paid for my first house. You know, it, that's just an, an an amazingly bad amount of debt. It's ridiculous, and and really, you know, at least when you put that into a house, other than in today's market, you typically get some equity out of it in several years. 
Um, whereas with the student loan debt, you do have the ability to, I mean, the classic argument is to get a college education so that you can make more money. Right. Well, we're educating pastors. And so if that argument holds true within the church, these pastors have to take calls only to congregations that can afford to pay them enough so that they can service their debt. Right. Which many times leaves these pastors uh, to take calls to lot larger congregations. And the reality within, at least I know the LCMS, because that's what I'm familiar with, is that it's the smaller congregations that don't have pastors. Right. The... Right. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm hearing uh, from uh, from basically all quarters within the LCMS is that there's a whole host of smaller congregations who can't afford to call a pastor. Where where I live in northern Nevada, um, we have six LCMS churches uh, just in our, I think they call it a circuit. Um, and within that, within those six or seven churches, up until a month ago, five of them were vacant. Wow. And they're all small congregations in rural areas of uh, northern Nevada. So um, as to... That's, I think, partially, partially the problem. Uh, the other problem is, is that uh, in many ways, I don't want to uh, belie any of the seminaries because I think they do a fine job. But I think it's become almost a, a practical education in a lot of ways instead of a theological education. Okay. Now, I'm not going to say that that's absolutely true within the LCMS because I think fine theologians are educated within our seminaries and probably also within the ELCA. I'm talking about more the overall the overall practice or focus. Um, Wittenberg Institute's focus would be to educate theologians uh, that know how to and have a desire and a, and a zeal for preaching, teaching, and going and sending for the gospel message of Christ and Him crucified, who are able to field questions and answer them, who are able to be theologians and pastors because really a theologian should be a pastor. They should be pastoral. There's, the study of theology should be for the proclamation of the gospel. And so Wittenberg Institute's focus would then be to do just that. Okay. Put together a curriculum uh, that's probably a little lighter on the practical classes than a lot of people would like and a little heavier on the theological and academic classes. So you're really trying to make theologians first and pastors second, so to speak. We're acknowledging that uh, that a person who has an aptitude to be a pastor will learn those practical skills within a practical environment. Mm -hmm. And so we teach them the theological, we give them the theological training, and then we allow them to go out and get practical experience in local congregations under the supervision of caring pastors to teach them those practical aspects of being a pastor that we all know exist. But we're not focusing their education on those practical elements. So the practical elements are actually learned in the trenches out in the field uh, more so than in the classroom. That would be the idea. Okay. So uh, let me let me ask you this. Uh, how How is it that you're able to uh, offer such a rigorous theological education without uh, the folks graduating from the Wittenberg Institute being saddled with uh, $50,000, $60,000, $70,000, $80,000 in debt? Well, as of yet, we're not. Um, we're right now. We're in the development stage of our in-residence program. Okay. The in-residence program would be in Everett, Washington, and housed out of Trinity Lutheran College, uh, which is in Everett, Washington. Um, the The idea is is to accept twenty quality students per year. 
students who would be rigorously screened and would have the ability to come in and hit the ground running and study with the best professors in the world in an intensive way to become theologians and pastors. Now, in order to do this, we're hoping to put together a consortium of congregations that would be willing to donate towards the theological education of these future pastors and teachers. Okay. That donation would then cover the tuition and housing costs for the students enrolled at Wittenberg Institute. The focus here is on smaller quality rather than larger and charging more. Got it. So you're, you're, it's it's quality over quantity, and uh, and then you're really pushing to uh, have people who support you guys financially from the congregational level as well as the individual level to really offset the expenses uh, for these uh, young theologian pastors. The, yeah, the reality is that this dream will only come to fruition with the support of faithful congregations and generous parishioners in those congregations. Got it. The budget comparative to any of the other major uh, theological graduate schools within either synod or seminaries is small, um, but it's still it's still a hurdle for us at this point. I think um, one one of the 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 professors that support us said that this to get this going is necessary for the church to be renewed, but it's going to take a pile of money. Got it. All right, so you you guys are looking for a pile of money. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we're not looking for we're not looking for the largest pile, but still a pile nonetheless. All right. Now talk to me about. Okay, I understand that you guys need the money, but let, let's talk about some of the professors that you guys have. Uh, you know, at least got commitments from to a teacher the Wittenberg Institute, so people can kind of get an idea of of the the really the caliber of uh, of theological education that the Wittenberg Institute really envisions on. Uh, to offer to uh, uh, these uh, young up-and-coming uh, theological pastors. Uh, you have Dr. Rosenblatt. Uh, yes. You also have uh, jo- uh, Dr. Nestingen. We do. So basically the model that we followed here, in my in my last uh, two, two years and then the year after I had graduated at Concordia University, Irvine, uh, Dr. Charles Mansky started a program that was a, a Master of Arts in Reformation Theology, mm-hmm. and it was a, it was an incredibly unique model. He managed to bring in the best theologians in their field in the world to teach intensive sessions in that MA program, um, and give students in California access to people that they would never have access to otherwise. Right. I mean. Theologians like um, Dr. Kittleson came in and uh, taught on Luther. Uh, Lowell C. Green came in and taught a class on Melanchthon. Now, you'll never get a chance to take a class from somebody like Dr. Lowell Green on Melanchthon. And if your listeners aren't aware, he he and Dr. Uh, Timothy Wangard are the primary scholars in the world uh, in the study of Melanchthon. Okay. When we when we sat down to plan this, um, Aaron Peterson, who's our executive director, and I, when we sat down to plan this, the idea was in a lot of ways to follow that model, to bring in the best theologians in the world and let them teach on their subject of interest. Okay. So we're really setting them free to do what they love to do and setting the students free to do what they love to do, teach the subject that they love and learn 
what they have the students from the students' perspective come and learn uh, the subject that they say they've loved. So we have um, on our faculty fellows list uh, we have Dr. Mark Mattis, who is the premier theologian in the ELCA on the doctrine of justification. Okay, now, just so you know, when you say ELCA and theologian, people in my audience are going to have a knee-jerk reaction and go, oh, well, if he's a, you know an ELCA guy on justification, that means he denies it, right? No, that means he, he, affir- he affirms justification uh, by grace through faith alone on account of Christ alone and that to God alone go- goes all the glory. Right. He says it more clearly and uh, in absolutely the most per- – uh, the proclamation of the gospel comes so, so forth so clear in his writing that it's it's amazing. Now, good theologians exist within the ELCA that they've in many times been swallowed up by the controversies within their synodical body, right. but they do exist. And I think um, you mentioned already Dr. James Nestigan, who yep. was a professor at Luther Seminary, the premier ELCA seminary for 30 years. Um, he was there with Gerhard Ferdy, Steve Paulson. Um, who's also on our faculty fellows list, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, as you uh, mentioned before, Mm -hmm. Dr. Jeffrey Mallinson, who is the dean of Trinity Lutheran College, who uh, attended Concordia University, Irvine with me, went on to study with Dr. Alistair McGrath at uh, Oxford University, and he's he's our guy when it comes to epistemology, Mm -hmm. uh, also uh, apologetics and, and current trends. So from uh, Concordia, Irvine, on our faculty fellows list is also Dr. Adam Francisco, mm-hmm. formerly a professor at Concordia Seminary, Fort Wayne, and Dr. Corey Moss. So it's a it's a powerful list, and it's growing every day. Now, uh, is uh, Dr. McGrath gonna is is he on your fellows list as well? He's not um, at this point. That that needs to be secured. We have had preliminary conversations with him, and the reality with Dr. McGrath is that. He's so sought after that he's so busy. Um, we're, we'll try to play a relationship a little bit with Dr. Mallinson to see if we can get him over here for maybe a week. But at this point, he's not on the, the faculty fellows list. Got it. Now, he's he's no longer at Oxford, right? No, he's not. Okay. So I'm not actually sure what he's doing. The, I, uh, I just actually read a profile, and I think he's sort of um, guest lecturer at three different universities Oxford being one of them, and a university in Australia as well. Wow. All right. Well, it sounds like you guys have assembled you know, probably some of the brightest theological stars uh, in the uh, in the in the Reformation, Greater Reformation, and Lutheran constellations out there, and you're pulling on different strings, even from guys who are trapped in in uh, in, in the ELCA, but still hold to our confessions. It, so it sounds like this is going to be a very hard-hitting, rigorous program, and by the nature of what you guys are doing, it's probably going to be very controversial. People are going to maybe accuse you guys of pulling away students and resources from, uh, uh, you know, uh, F- uh, Fort Wayne and St. Louis. Yeah, I think it probably will be controversial, and in, in, in more than just those areas, when our website first went live. Um, all of our immediate calls and emails were from LCMS pastors. Um, and I think there is a bit of a concern that we may draw students away from the seminaries. And I want to say uh, up front that we have a complete understanding that 
in no way will our candidates walk into an LCMS congregation or for that matter, even an ELCA congregation and be certified for the ministry. Um, the program that the initial program that we conceived was two years master of theology, um, from which it was, it was, uh, thought that students would matriculate to one of their own synodical stem- seminaries if they wanted to go on to an MDiv program to be certified in the ministry with their, their local modality. Um, but, uh, and that's really still the case. As I said before, we're focusing on the theological education. Um, in our plan, uh, through some conversations with Dr. Oliver Olson, we incorporated a third year MDiv degree, but I think that degree would really serve, uh, function to serve people from independent or candidates from independent Lutheran churches, um, perhaps some of those coming out of the ELCA and those that already exist. Right. Now, so I don't know if it would be fair to say that we'd be in competition with Fort Wayne. Um, it, this is more, I think this would be more like the theological degree that would then complement what they would do at their own seminary. Got it. So, yeah, I, I can see that there's going to be some, <clears throat> we'll just say, inter-Nicene fighting, so to speak. But uh, the way I look at it is is that it's it's good to get a third alternative. I be- always believe that competition is good in the marketplace. And, uh, and when there's good competition, usually everybody benefits. And, you know, because in the long run, what that does is it pushes people to be better than what they currently are and to uh, move forward. I mean, you guys have put together, you know, basically an all-star team of theologians. And I think that that's going to uh, be very beneficial for uh, the students that uh, attend your university. But it also, in the long run, will be beneficial uh, so that uh, you get some competition going between not just uh Fort Wayne and St. Louis but uh, now with this uh, this odd odd combination here it 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 leaves a big question mark as to what's going to happen now so I, I think it's great by the way um i you know i i don't think i've spent too much time discussing this but uh, i'm enrolled at the Wittenberg Institute in your uh, masters uh, your research masters program Correct. And, yeah, and we're, we're we feel lucky to have you. So tell 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 the folks about this program. This is a, this is a something that's completely different uh, as well because it follows a European model as as far as uh, getting a degree is concerned. Talk about this research uh, master's degree. Well, uh, currently, and this is something that we currently offer. Whereas the residential program, we're we're in the planning and development stages. Uh, we are, we're offering a Master's of Theology research, um, and basically it follows, I'd say it does follow a European model, but probably more specifically uh, an English model of, of granting a research degree, where the degree is based not as much on classwork done, but on accepting students who are already qualified to come into a research program. They may already have a, a, pr- a primary master's degree, like an MDiv. Um, or they may uh, simply have a bachelor's degree and have demonstrated to us through uh, different scholarly publications and whatnot that they're able to come in and do some self-guided research. The benefit of this degree and the model that it follows is that we have the ability to connect a student with a particular focused interest with an advisor that has that same interest. Put those two together, have that advisor recommend readings to sit for that student to do over the course of two years and then guide that student through the process of 
uh, honing their research, narrowing their research, developing their research into what would be a research proposal, and then an outline, and then a comprehensive defensible thesis that the student would present to the faculty of Wittenberg Institute, and that the student would also be required to defend as they uh, as they end their studies with Wittenberg Institute. Right, and just so people know that uh, this also, especially in my case, it, it this serves to be the, uh, the foundation on which you can build, uh, you know, into a doctorate as well. Correct, and for and for most uh, for most people who. For most of the candidates that come into this degree program, I think it will either serve as a terminal degree for somebody who already has an MDiv and wants to do a more academic degree, um, or it will serve as a jumping-off point for a, a PhD program right. for somebody. Um, and I think that's probably the two functions that this degree will serve. Um, it's it's really a great model. It does require some intensives. Um we do want students to come. Uh, we will offer once a year a research methodologies class that they will be required to attend. And then uh, we want them to complete four units of study. Um, we're putting together something at Trinity Lutheran College over the summers that will bring in our faculty fellows to teach in their particular areas of, uh, of specialty. Or a student could go to another program um, as long as they cleared it by us. So lots of uh, basically some a completely different way of doing things, at least for people who are used to the American uh, system of education. So, I mean, some options that are just have really not been offered in the United States by and large, but really have been limited to Europe and, and specifically Great Britain. Sure. And if you peruse, I mean, I encourage students who are thinking about this as maybe a possibility and it just seems so far um, off the norm for them that they sort of discount it. I'd encourage them to uh, peruse the the United Kingdom universities. And I think nine times out of ten as you do that and you're looking at degrees in theology, you'll see that there's a course-based option and a research option available to students. Yep. And that's the, uh, that's the model that we followed when we were putting this together. So good stuff. So th- those of you who are listening to this program and I- either for yourself or if you know somebody who's interested in pursuing a theological education and uh, is looking for something that is uh, rigorous uh, and theologically um intensive uh or if you're looking to uh you know widen uh, your degree and you know your studies and consider getting a research uh a type degree along the lines of what uh, Europe is offering then the Wittenberg, the Wittenberg Institute is really the uh, the institute for you. And uh, tell tell my listeners how they can get more information about uh, the Wittenberg Institute, either uh, you know, to express some interest to, to be a student or to uh, to find out how they can support you guys financially, uh, so that they uh, so that uh, this this idea that you guys have can uh, really hit its stride and and achieve the goals that you guys are setting for it. Uh, as with most things this day, the best way to do that is probably to visit the Internet. And we're located at wittenberginstitute.org. Um, at our website, you'll all the different tabs explain pretty much, I think, everything that you might, uh, every question you might have. Um, our academics uh, tab covers the research uh, masters, our course-based proposal, our faculty fellows, admissions requirements. You can apply online. You can um uh, read about the idea of the consortium congregation. We also have a think tank uh, that uh, is posted up there where we're 
we're gathering together the best uh, theologians from the world to put together uh, publications that would be of use to congregations. Right now we're in production of our first uh, theological magazine called Believe, Teach, and Confess. And we have authors that would just, uh, I think, astound people in there. Everything from Mark Mattis to Corey Moss wrote for for us in this uh, particular issue. Uh, you can join our mailing list on the website. You can uh, donate from the website. And uh, if people still have questions beyond that, they can uh, email us from the website and that email will come directly to me, and I'd be happy to answer any further questions that people might have. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Scott, thank you for coming on the program. Normally we're trying to defend the Christian faith a little bit more from a direct point of view, but uh, the one thing I've uh, realized in in looking at just the state of the church in the United States and, and, and the really the state of Lutheranism in uh, in many quarters uh it it's going to it's this is not going to be an easy fix it's going to take a long time to uh to turn the tide so to speak and that's going to require that we've got serious men who uh pursue uh you know the uh, the ordained ministry and pursue the vocation of theologian in a very rigorous and and uh intensive way and i think what you guys are doing uh, in the long run, run could really uh, be a significant step towards combating and uh, and turning the tide against much of the uh, theological error and heresy that has just crept into all quarters of the church. I agree. We want we want people to be steeped in the scriptures. We want them to see the red thread of Christ throughout the holy scriptures. We want them to understand uh, that the gospel message is imperative to healing the broken church. It's the only thing that will do it. And it needs to be preached, and it needs to be taught intensely and boldly within our congregations. Amen. Amen. Scott, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for having me. All right. All right. There you have it. Okay, we're up on our second break. When we come back, it's going to be sermon review time. We're going to be reviewing a lecture by a guy by the name of Tim Keel called The Gospel Revisited. And uh, this is just some bad stuff, folks. Um false gospels this is the this is why we need well-trained theologian pastors so that they can combat in their congregations the type of teaching that you well that you hear constantly here at fighting for the faith but also the stuff that's creeping in to congregations through uh you know gabe lyons scott kinnaman and and uh, other folks in the emergent camp All right, um, so we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. 
of this sissy, frenzy, turning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Hello, this is Reverend Matt Slick, President and Founder of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I wanted to let you know about our online schools of theology, apologetics, and critical thinking. Each school has been developed out of my more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, author, and defender of the Christian faith. With these schools, you can learn what you need to know about the Christian faith, how to defend it, and how to promote the gospel. The three schools are very easy to use, and you can go through them at your own pace. They're designed with short, succinct lessons that include topics such as Christian doctrine, the Bible, evangelism, the cults, atheism, evolution, Islam, logic, and critical thinking. Each lesson is followed by questions that you answer in a self-paced fashion. So, in order to grow in your Christian faith, please visit CARM.org, that's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and click on the link for the online schools at the top of the page. And enter the code PIRATE to receive a 10% discount. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. I'm going to demonstrate how a theological sleight of hand is done. Because it's done in this lecture. Let's uh, cue up the music here for Sermon Review. the bad and the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's lesson comes to us 
from the Q Talks. You can find them at qideas.org. Look for the video entitled The Gospel Revisited. This uh, particular lecture is presented by Tim Keel. Tim Keel is the founding pastor of Jacob's Well in Kansas City, Missouri. He is married to Mimi, and together they have three kids. He received a BFA in design from the University of Kansas and a Master's of Divinity from Denver Seminary. This is a guy who basically hangs out In the emergent church, Tim is the author of Intuitive Leadership, Embracing a Paradigm of Narrative, Metaphor, and Chaos. Yeah. Let's um, kill this music. Yeah, I'm going to kill you now. Uh-huh. Okay. Here we go. Bang. Okay. <clears throat> so Tim's um, <clears throat> lecture is entitled The Gospel revisited what you are going to hear is theological sleight of hand pay close attention and uh, open up your bibles to galatians chapter 1 for some reference work that we will be doing today here we go good morning morning good morning it's so great to be here with you all um, what an awesome opportunity to follow such a magical group of presenters this morning. And then to see Zach up here just pouring himself out, it's extraordinary. And, and that kind of vulnerability, I think, is required, especially as we talk about something like the gospel, which is, which is very precious to us, and yet is such an important conversation that we need to be having. What is the gospel? And why do we need to revisit it if we need to revisit uh, Hang on a second here. Uh, if we're going to, let's say, let's just say, for instance... Tim, maybe we need to revisit the gospel. If we were to revisit it, what address would we go to? Where would we go to, quote, revisit the gospel? For instance, if we decided that we, you know, to, if we were to wander out of the gospel's neighborhood and then, you know, decide, well, you know what? We kind of missed that old friend of ours, the gospel. Uh, let's go revisit him. Where would we go to revisit the gospel? We'd have to go to the Bible. God and God alone gets to decide what the gospel is. So if we're going to revisit the gospel, you know, and I believe there are many churches that ought to revisit the gospel, the one and only place they are to go to revisit the gospel is in God's word. That's it. That's the only place where we can revisit the gospel. Now, um, I told you to turn to Galatians chapter 1. <clears throat> Let me read to you uh, the Apostle Paul's sharp words to the Galatian churches who had basically strong need of revisiting the gospel because they were believing a false gospel. Paul writes to them, I begin at verse 1, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Notice he lays his credentials out on the table immediately. Paul is not an apostle from men. He was an apostle chosen by Jesus Christ himself. To the churches of Galatia, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Well, not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be anathema, eternally condemned, eternally damned. Now, as I've said before, so we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the gospel that you received, let him be accursed. Yeah, so revisiting the gospel is a real important thing. Because you need to, it's not just a matter of revisiting the gospel, it's a matter of revisiting the biblical gospel, the one preached by the apostles. And what is that gospel? It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 1, I read, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. Verse 1 makes it clear. Paul's going to remind them of the gospel that he preached which you received, which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, if you hold fast, hold fast to the one and only true gospel. Got it? Unless, of course, you believe in vain. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, and then he appeared to James the Apostles, and last of all to me as one untimely born. What's the gospel? Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. That's the good news. The Bible gets to define it because the Bible was written by and under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the biblical good news. It had better line up with this. And if it is contrary or different or has a different source than God's word, it is a false gospel that not that not only is incapable of not saving false gospels, damn people. That's what the Apostle Paul said. Let them be anathema. That's how serious this subject matter is. Let's continue with Tim Keel's lecture. Revisited it all. I think it's an incredibly relevant and important question that is being asked both explicitly by people who are being thoughtful and seeking to engage what's happening in the world. I also think it's happening implicitly in our lives. That there's the way that we live and there's the way that we think that we live. 
And often our imaginative frameworks don't match the reality of how we live our lives. I think this question, what is the gospel, is being driven by a missional posture of engagement. People are desperate to engage the world with what we believe is the good news of Jesus Christ. We're hungry to participate with what God is up to in the world. We're hungry to participate with what God is up to in the world. That's Blackaby. That's not biblical. That's Blackaby. Am I on? Yes. Okay. We have a sense that something significant is happening, but we equally have an awareness that something also seems out of killer kilter. What is it? And our default posture as a group of people seeking to follow Christ has been in the age out of which we've emerged is to assume that our method is wrong. And so we re-examine methods. We look for cutting-edge opportunities to do things differently, all the while assuming that our message is static. Folks, I think we have a message problem. So it's wrong for us to think that, quote, the message is static, and you, th- you think, you think we have a message problem. And that problem is, is that we think that we have a um, static message. <clears throat> The Apostle Jude, who was a brother of Jesus Christ, half-brother, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation... I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Hmm. The Apostle Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in his letter that's found in the Bible, said, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Huh. So there were people who were perverting Jesus' message. Verse 8. In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. Mm-hmm. They reject authority. They are people who reject the authority of the scriptures. Let's continue. I think there's a growing awareness and a concern that we have domesticated the gospel. Domestication. Do you know what this word means? To domesticate something? So he's making an appeal from subjective feeling. There's this concern. There's this feeling out there that maybe we've domesticated the gospel. Really, I didn't know that the gospel was a wild animal that could be domesticated. The gospel can is true, and people can pervert it. People can twist it. Pre- people can preach a false gospel. 
But domestication doesn't fall into the category of things that can happen to a gospel, at least the biblical one. What happens when you domesticate something? You take something wild and you break it so that it lives politely indoors. To domesticate is to take something wild and break it so that it lives politely indoors. I think culturally we have been in the process for a number of years, for hundreds of years maybe, of domesticating the gospel. And so it's not that we have a message problem. The message is wrong. It's that our version of the message has been inadequate to the reality of what God has come to do in Jesus Christ. What's it been domesticated by? Well, there's been a lot of work on this. And I want to... Please tell us. I mean, apparently the big problem here is that our version of the gospel has domesticated it. Okay, okay, whatever. Can you give me an example, please? This is a subjective argument. Can you show us in the scriptures what the gospel is and then show us examples from people who are contradicting it and domesticating it? just offer just one aspect of something that I think is a domesticating force on the gospel. And that is a modern culture of reductionism. In the West, we love to reduce things. To reduce is to observe a complex reality and reduce it to a simplified abstraction that is devoid of its context. Okay, so was the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 engaging in modernist recon, uh, uh, reductionism. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, I mean, I, from what I understand, Paul wrote this in the first century in the 50s, like 52, 53 A.D., I mean, last time I pulled out a calendar and you checked a timeline... 52 A.D. was like a long, 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 long time before the modern era. So was I, I, I find it like completely unbelievable to believe that the Apostle Paul was engaging in modernist reductionism here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. To reduce is to observe a complex reality and remove it from the context out of which it's emerged. That's profoundly affected our churches. It's profoundly affected leadership. Rather than leaders living deeply in a context, deeply in the narratives of their, of their lives, their neighborhoods, their people, and the scriptures, and then responding imaginatively and creatively in... Responding what way? Living deeply in the narrative and then responding imaginatively and creatively. Hmm. Where in the Bible does it say that we are to do that? Respond with, quote, imagination and creativity. We're supposed to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Where in the Bible are we instructed by Jesus, his apostles, the prophets, or Moses, that we are to somehow, you know, engage in imaginative creativity when it comes to living narratively in a missional whatever? In that context, 
What we often do in leadership is find the most successful ministry out there, strip it of its context, reduce it to a model, and then apply technique. And so leadership becomes... Okay, like Rick Warren teaches. Okay, all right, so you're attacking Rick Warren. All right. It's about the right application of the most relevant techniques. It's profoundly affected our reading of scriptures. We reduce the complexity and the diversity of the text to a simple or maybe a complex system. All the while flattening the beauty and the integrity of what is really there. And it's profoundly affected, I believe, our understanding and maybe even more significantly our incarnation of the gospel. So our incarnation of the gospel. I'm not the gospel. And I don't incarnate the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. I could be a proclaimer of that message, but I am not an incarnate whatever when it comes to the gospel. I can't incarnate the gospel. That's ridiculous. That's like completely focusing on the wrong thing. When we talk about the incarnation, we're not talking about me incarnating the gospel or you incarnating the gospel. Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Say, if we're in Christ, we are, part, we are a new creation. It doesn't say I incarnate the gospel, it says I'm a new creation. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It doesn't say here that we've been given the ministry of incarnating the gospel. It says Christians have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Now, nowhere in the scripture do I read that we are to, quote, incarnate the gospel. Instead, the right way of saying it is, is that we're ambassadors of a different kingdom. We're ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And what we're doing is we're proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations, as Jesus has instructed us to do in Luke chapter 24. Or, as Paul says, we are, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation and that God makes his appeal through us calling sinners to repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is what the text says. Um, Tim, I'm hearing all kinds of concern from you, kind of postmodern angst, if you would. Um, and this is all based on subjectivity. If we're going to revisit the gospel, I think we better let God's word do the speaking, and that's where we need to revisit it at. Not in your psyche, 
not in your emotional angst, not in our imaginations, not in our creativity, but in the objective and clear teaching of the Word of God. And we've got some problems here because I don't see anywhere where it says that we're called to, quote, incarnate the gospel. If the Bible said that, then maybe you'd have a point. What is the gospel, at least our version of it? Well, I think the gospel is a word that has become shorthand. It describes the means of how we are going to get to heaven after we die. And it's why Jesus died on the cross. In this version of the gospel, the story of Jesus is reduced to a series of propositions meant to save a person's soul from sin. Uh, from the wrath of God, actually. Uh, a series of propositions. Hmm. Let's see. Are these propositions in First uh, Corinthians 15? I delivered as of first importance. Christ died for our sins. That's a proposition. In accordance with the scriptures. Uh-huh. That he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's a propositional statement, too. Hmm. How, again, um, was the Apostle Paul wrong here to reduce the gospel down to such a compressed set of propositional statements? I mean, if the Apostle Paul was wrong, then we must, we must conclude that the Holy Spirit was wrong because all Scripture is God-breathed, and the Apostle Peter himself said that Paul's writings were Scripture. In the last 50 years, we've reduced the gospel and perfected it as a science almost of how we explain in a simple and efficient way how it is we access eternal life. And you know, the Bible does that, Tim. Do you have a problem with the text? When followed logically and sequentially and accepted in faith, the person who is the object of the gospel is assured of a future otherworldly, eternal existence. Yeah, that's the kind of, that's the thing that, that we can absolutely guarantee the gospel guarantees because the gospel doesn't guarantee a soft, cushy life this side of Christ's return. There's Christians who lose their lives for proclaiming that gospel. There's people who die proclaiming that gospel. There's people whose lives are a complete train wreck, and even though they trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that that train wreck will not be cleaned up this side of the resurrection. So, yeah, the eternal life lived in the presence of God in a resurrected sinless body for eternity in a new heaven and new earth is the one thing the gospel does guarantee because it doesn't guarantee equal results this side of the resurrection because we all get the wages of our sin. Now, I'm afraid in our context that oftentimes we have a greater commitment to the categories, systems, and understandings of the gospel than the person it is meant to reflect. I stumbled upon this great quote by Fyodor Dostoevsky, the 19th century Russian author. Listen to what Dostoevsky has to say. If some uh, by the way, I just want to <clears throat> remind you all that uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky 
his um, works are not scripture. Someone were to prove to me that Christ was outside the truth, and it was really the case that the truth lay outside of Christ, then I should choose to stay with Christ rather than with the truth. What is he saying? In his context, he knows that the truth is often mediated by what? Those who have power. Oh, yeah, see, if if you've been attending those churches that, you know, preach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, you know, what the Bible says, <clears throat> what they're really doing is exercising power over you in a very modernist kind of way. And so he's saying Christ gets and commands his most profound loyalty. Folks, I think some of our modern epistemological commitments are costing us. I think it's costing us our ability to see. I think it's costing us our ability to perceive God's activity in the world around us. And I think it's causing us to struggle with our ability to engage the world in meaningful narratives. This is all just irrationalism and postmodern epistemology. This is what this is. An epistemology of irrationalism. I have no desire whatsoever to contradict the scriptures. And I have no reason, because of what the scriptures teach, to believe that, quote, God is working outside of Christianity, except for to condemn. False religions condemn people to hell. God is not working in other religions. Not that, not to save of what God is doing. And so we have our lives and we have how we think we live our lives. And there is distance in those two things. I think we've lost our ability to see that we're experiencing in the Western church, what I describe as a crisis of imagination. Oh, good gravy. A what? We're experiencing a crisis of imagination. Again, Where is this big biblical doctrine of imagination? Which book again is it in? Which epistle? Where is it taught in the Gospels? We're experiencing a crisis of imagination. Now, many of us are not even aware that the imagination has anything to do with the Gospel. It doesn't. The Gospel's completely outside of me, and it's been given to me to deliver to other people. I don't get to mess with the message using my imagination. And guess what? That's a sign of the problem. Many of us are not even aware that imagination has anything to do with the gospel. Let me give a definition of imagination. The faculty or action of forming new ideas, images, or concepts of external objects not present to the senses. The faculty or action of forming new ideas, images, or concepts of external objects not present to the senses. You know what that sounds a lot like to me? Heresy? Jesus' invitation to the disciples. He comes to them. Jesus does not invite us to use our imaginations when it comes to the gospel. We're not to tamper with it. It's the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It says, behold, which is another way of saying what? See. The kingdom of God is where? Anyone? At hand. At hand. And the disciples are like, what? 
Not any kingdom that I'm imagining. Because, see, we have a narrative of what kingdom is supposed to look like when Messiah shows up. They've got a perception problem. They couldn't see it because their imagination was captive to a cultural narrative about what kingdom realities were meant to look like when Messiah shows up. And so Jesus says an extraordinary thing to them. You know what he says? Metanoia. We translate that poorly, repent. Do you know what it really means? Change your mind. Wake up, people. You know what the opposite of metanoia is? Paranoia. Collapsing down within. And so Jesus says to a group of people who think they want the kingdom... But their imaginations are captive to a reality that is less than what God would have for them. And so he has to jar them. He says to them, metanoia, wake up. The kingdom of God, this thing that you think you want, it is right here before you. I'm calling you to see and to participate in a different reality, in an alternate reality. I want you to discover and to live in a different narrative. <clears throat> Does the scripture say any of this? No, it doesn't. He's eisegeting at this point. And the Bible doesn't call us to imagination. Let's continue. Now, let me say this. That is no small thing. As we've been hearing about all throughout Q, the ability to see an alternate reality and live in a different narrative, especially when our lives are filled with the amount of noise that our lives are filled with. It was no less the challenge for Jesus' disciples either. It's no small thing to wake up and to live in an alternate reality. And critical to any possible living in an alternate reality, is the story that animates that reality. What story characterizes our life? Modernity traded story for proposition. I love this quote from Mark Twain. I think I got an old version of my... Oh, there's the Dostoevsky quote, huh? Ah, here we go. Read this out loud with me in unison, will you? You cannot depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. Okay, I need to remind you all, this particular quote from Mark Twain is not found in the Bible. You'll notice that Tim Keel here is not making a biblical argument. Sounds curiously like what Jesus says to the disciples. Really, where did Jesus talk about imagination again? This is why, read with me. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. Which is a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus has to awaken the imagination. What? 
Really, which of the apostles taught that that was what was going on here? Where do you find this written in any of the church fathers? And so he reaches into the context of their lives, the metaphors, the images, the the, the grain fields they're walking by. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Not what you would imagine it would be. And so if we want to talk about what the gospel is, if we want to reframe the gospel, then what we have to do first is to uproot that gospel from the propositions that have hosted it and relocate it in its context. What? Uh, no, absolutely not. I will not un- you know, unroot the gospel or t- dig it out of the propositions that, it, uh, that host it because those propositions are biblical propositions and the propositions themselves are found in God's word. No way, Jose. To do that is to teach a different gospel, a gospel that damns. What is the context of the gospel? Folks, it is the Old Testament narratives. The gospel is rooted in the narratives of the Old Testament reality. The gospel in our age has been disembedded from the narrative frameworks of the Old Testament. But guess what? Jesus was not disembedded from the narrative frameworks of the Old Testament. Jesus lived deeply and faithfully in the Old Testament narratives. In fact, there are more, four dominant narrative frameworks that animated a first century Jewish imagination. Four Old Testament stories that allowed them to perceive and imagine themselves living with God in reality. I'm sure you know what they are. The creation story was one story that animated a Jewish mentality. The Exodus story, they sing it over and over and over again in the Psalms, what God has done in time to, to liberate them. The exile story. The return from Babylon after a season of captivity. And finally, the priestly story. These four dominant narrative frameworks animated the Jewish imagination for a long time, but especially in the first century where Jesus comes. Creation, exodus, exile, and the priestly stories. Jesus in the Gospels interacts profoundly with each of these stories. But oftentimes, by the way, yeah, you're right, because the entire Old Testament's really written about Christ. Go back to the road to Emmaus, Jesus Christ. He's raised from the dead. He's on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his disciples, and their eyes are held so they wouldn't recognize him because he wants to teach him something. And what does he do? He opens up the scriptures and shows all the things in the scriptures that are written about him. Jesus himself reduces the gospel down to proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And you want to know what a sin is? You have to go back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament animates that particular sin narrative, if you would. We do not have eyes to see the ways in which Jesus is renegotiating these stories in light of God's present activity. And that way they're encoded. Now, do you know this? The word gospel. It's euangelion. Origin is not the New Testament. It's the Old Testament. In fact, the exile story. There's a part of Isaiah that's profound. We use it all the time in talking about who Jesus is. This last section of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40 through verse through uh, chapter 66. This section of Isaiah describes what life with God will be like when Israel comes back from exile. 
It begins a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path for our God. Does that sound familiar to us? That would be John the Baptist. Israel's going to come back from exile. And so Isaiah 40 begins with this recognition that there's a flattening so that as Israel comes back from Babylon, there will be a smooth path to bring her back. The gospel is rooted in the Jewish exile narrative and it gets its expression in a verse that's familiar to us mostly through bad worship songs. Let's look at this. Let's look at this passage. Uh Uh-oh. There we go. Read with me again. How beautiful on the mountains and the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. This is gospel as Jesus understood it. In the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament, euangelion is the same word we use. And so what is the content of the gospel according to the exile narrative of Isaiah? Salvation. It's right there in the text. You just read it. Your God reigns. And what does it look like when our God reigns? The proclamation of what? Peace. Shalom. Creation being restored to harmony with the creator's purposes and everything else falling into line with it. This is the good news, Evangelion. Your God reigns to proclaim peace, to bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, this reality, despite all evidence to the contrary, is where God is active. The proclamation of restoration of peace and of shalom. Folks, the exile is just one of four framing narratives that Jews would have been interacting with in the first century. Like I said, also Exodus, creation, and priestly. Let's just do a little bit more work in the exile story, though. The exile story is about God's restoration of Israel from captivity in Babylon. What were they put into captivity for? Why did Israel get judged and taken into captivity? God calling Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to come and conquer them and take them into exile. What was that about? Answer, they were worshiping and serving other gods. God describes it as whoring after other gods. And so in the story of exile, salvation is this. Salvation is the movement with God from the fractured margins of belonging back to the center of life with God. The fractured margins of belonging, really, where, where is that taught in the Bible again? In Old Testament, New Testament, where is that again? Or were you using your imagination to come up with that? In the exile narrative, salvation is movement, a dynamic journey with God from the fractured edges of belonging back to a life centered in the reality of God's purposes. It's a dynamic journey of reconciliation. Okay. This is real simple. Solomon. Okay. Think on a timeline here. You got King David, then you got King Solomon. Solomon 
Uh, he had kind of a woman thing. He he really liked women a lot. He married a lot of women. Many of those women that he married uh, were, um, well, worshipers of other gods. And it, it starts causing problems because they start setting up little worship centers to uh, these other deities. And, uh, you know, the northern kingdom falls into apostasy. They get t- the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. They're gone. Uh, and then Judah, you know, they follow suit. And if you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you read Ezekiel, they all lay it out for you pretty clear. They worshipped and served other gods contrary to the covenant. God said, enough is enough. I'm going to take you out of the land that I gave you because the covenant said that if they did that, God would do that. God punished them and basically Almost all of Israel was destroyed except for a remnant, and the remnant that remained that God allowed to live in the 70 years in exile, they repented big time and got back to worshiping and serving the one true God and him alone. God restores them again in the land. Why? Because through Abraham's seed, the Messiah, comes. You follow the scarlet thread, and wouldn't you know it, 400 years later, Jesus is born. I mean, this is not hard. I don't know. I I haven't read any passages about that story being about people being marginalized or whatever. This this is a completely liberalized, postmodern way of looking at the scriptures in a way that guts it of its meaning. Luke's gospel is filled with exile language. It's encoded with the themes of the exile, the images of the exile. In Luke chapter... This is like the postmodern Bible code, by the way. Chapter 4, Jesus stands up at the beginning of his public ministry, and what does he say? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus walks off center stage, sits down. We're told all eyes are on him. And then what does he say? Today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. What is Jesus saying? Yeah, please, because, by the way, that good news is preached to all the poor, not the poor if, if monetarily, but those who are poor in spirit. Well, first of all, let's locate where this passage is quoted from. Isaiah 61. The section of Isaiah that talks what life will be like when God restores Israel from exile. My friend Ron Martoya says, this is Jesus's personal mission statement. This is how he understands what it is he's doing. Jesus sees himself as brokering God's shalom to marginalized people. No, that is a completely foreign and false interpretation of Jesus's words here. And the rest of Luke and Acts is filled with accounts of Jesus engaging those whom society had left out. No gospel spends more energy with women, children, the poor, the demon-possessed, and the Gentiles. 
Luke in his, in his gospel and in the Acts account is consumed with describing the return from exile found in Christ. The Exodus story. We know the Exodus story. It's God's rescue of Israel from slavery and oppression in Egypt. Salvation in the Exodus story is movement with God from bondage to freedom. It's the proclamation that Yahweh, not Pharaoh, reigns. Yes, and those are types that point to our salvation. Because what are we all born in bondage and slavery to? Sin, death, and the devil. And Christ frees us from our bondage and slavery to sin, death, and the devil through his death on the cross to propitiate God's wrath and to redeem us. Yes, the Exodus story points us to Christ and points us to our own salvation, and it is a picture of what Christ has done for us. Now get this, through the blood of the Lamb. Think Passover here. In the Passover narrative, what happened, I mean, when it comes to the the killing of the firstborn, how is it that Israel's firstborn are not also killed along with the firstborn of Egypt? Answer, the blood of the lamb covering their do- the door the lentils to their their house the doorposts to their home the destroyer sees the blood of the lamb and passes over in much the same way we are saved from the destroyer because we are covered in the blood of the lamb let's see if he k- picks up on this stuff god reigns it's a dynamic journey of liberation matthew and mark's gospel are rife with images of Jesus as the new Moses, reconstituting Israel and leading her on a new exodus, a dynamic journey of liberation. My personal favorite, the creation story, especially now that we're in this season of Easter. We tend to think of Easter primarily as redemptive, and it's true that it is, but Easter is profoundly creative. Profoundly even better said. It's true that it's redemptive, but, oh, it's it's way more than that. He just erased the redemptive piece of it. Where is the redemption in this gospel that he thinks we need to rethink? Recreative. God's good creation and his creatures designed as images in the likeness of God, given the responsibility to rule with and alongside God. Our God reigns, but then what does he do? He transfers power to us to rule in his stead. The Genesis narrative. Uh, uh. And yet Adam and Eve, we know full well, default on that role. And so salvation in the creation story is restoration of the creation project and human beings into renewed participation with God. Do you know that John's gospel... Notice all the eisegeting he's doing. All of these themes, he's sticking them into those texts. Is many things, but it is least a retelling of the Genesis narrative in light of Jesus Christ. All throughout John's gospel, creation story. Genesis chapter 1 begins, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1 begins how? In the beginning was the word. 
And the word was with God and the word was God. Similar language to clue us into the fact that in Christ, God is doing something as it relates to creation and his intent for it. You might know the story that happens early on in John chapter 2. We're told Jesus attends a wedding at the behest of his mother. The hosts don't do a good job planning. Obviously, they needed the Q team to help make things work quickly. Yeah, you know what's funny? Uh, John 1, you know, it, you're right. Uh, yeah, it, it, Jesus is the new creator, okay? And that God's doing something in Jesus. What was he doing? Hmm, maybe we can let the text in John 1 speak for itself. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. John 1, verse 9. He was in the world, the world, even though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Yeah, you go to the text that you're quoting, and shazam, it brings us right back to the biblical gospel, which you impugned as being modernist and propositional. And easily, they run out of wine. Jesus tells the servants to fill these jars meant for ritual cleaning. Before we know what's happening, the best vintage comes pouring out of there. We're told at the beginning of the John 2 narrative that this all happens on the third day. You go back to the creation narrative in chapter 1 of Genesis. And do you know what is created on the third day? Vines that produce fruit. Think about Holy Week, the season we've just come out of. On the sixth day of the Genesis creation account, who is created? Human beings. On the sixth day of Holy Week, also known as Good Friday, what happens? Human beings in Christ die. On the seventh day of creation in Genesis, what is God doing? Resting. And on the seventh day of Holy Week, called Holy Saturday, what is God doing? Resting in the tomb. And then we get to John chapter 20. And I don't know if you remember this, but when the story begins, it's the resurrection narrative where the disciples have gone to the tomb. The women first. And we open it up and we read in John, we read John writing on the first day. On the first day. That is not accidental language. The creation project and the resurrection of Christ has begun again. You don't believe me? There's more evidence. Down in verse 15, Mary Mac. Okay, I want to point something out. Dude, um, if you read the patristics, the early church fathers, they totally got this like 2,000 years ago. I mean, the writings of the early church fathers, they readily and easily picked up on these themes and wrote about them. Yet it's they're the ones who also proclaimed repentance and the forgiveness of sins and all of that. What are you proposing? Some kind of a Rob Bell-esque resurrection rescue concept for the gospel Magdalene running to try and figure out what's going on passes this figure in the garden and she doesn't notice it's jesus why because she mistakes him for what the gardener and then later on we're told that jesus comes to his disciples they're freaked out 
And the first thing he says to them is peace, also shalom. All is as it should be now. And then we're told he says to them, peace again. And then we're told he does what? He breathes on them. Calling to mind the account in Genesis where God reaches down into the dust and shapes human beings. And then Ruach fills them with his spirit. There is so much happening that we have not had eyes to see captive to proposition as we have been. Folks, John's gospel is a retelling of the creation story in light of Christ. Why is this guy acting like he's the first person to discover this? I mean, seriously, those of us who believe that the biblical propositions about repentance, the forgiveness of sins, Christ dying on the cross for our sins, penal substitution, and all that stuff. I mean, I've known about these themes really since I went to Bible school. And I graduated, you know, 17, 18 years ago. Maybe he's he acts like this is all news because the the evangelical church has been so dumbed down and so shallow in their biblical preaching that they they've completely lost track of this stuff. Creation in Christ is back on track. We are back in the garden and human beings are given again the role of Adam and Eve meant to steward and rule on God's behalf, to create culture, to be a force of God's stewardship in the world for the redemption and the restoration of all things. I said there were four stories. The exile story, the exodus story, the creation story. The third, the fourth and final is the priestly sacrifice story. I think this is the story that we are most familiar with. Especially as it relates to the gospel. Yeah, just read the book of Hebrews. In each of the previous stories, I've talked about the movement of God being a dynamic interaction of journey and of partnership and of participation. The priestly sacrifice story breaks that rhythm. It's not a story of dynamic movement and engagement, but of brokering a transaction. Salvation in the priestly sacrifice story is the transaction that moves us from unholy to holy. You're dirty. Here is how you now become clean. The thing that's interesting about this story is that at least in the Gospels, it is the story that Jesus engages with the least. And when he does engage it, really, it's the story he engages in the least. Then why is it that all four Gospels, the pinnacle peak moment, the climax of the story is Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for our sins as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I find what you say to be disturbingly off. In fact, some people have described the Gospels as four crucifixion narratives with Preludes of varying length. He subverts it. You think you know who is holy. 
You think you know who is clean. Jesus says when we engage the priestly story, we most often mistake who is righteous and unrighteous. Folks, the church, I believe, has been obsessed with the priestly story. We framed the gospel in Jesus almost exclusively through the priestly lens. It's how the gospel, the good news, God's salvation is primarily and dominantly described. Why? Probably a lot of reasons, but certainly. Yeah, because, you know, if you read the New Testament, they seem to do that. You know, the gospel is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, raised again on the third day for our justification in accordance with the scripture, you know. Forgiveness of sins, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves. But God is, you know, if, but if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then you got like the entire book of Hebrews talking about the Melchizedek priesthood, you know, which Christ has as opposed to the uh, priesthood of Levi and Aaron. And, uh, you know, um, Weird how the New Testament constantly harps on those um, those priestly themes. Hmm. This the priestly story is the most readily reduced to a propositional formula. It's easily explained and it's replicatable. Our sin has made us unclean through the sacrifice on the cross. We are cleansed, and you know what? Hallelujah! Yes, Amen. It's good and true and beautiful and powerful as far as it goes. Oh, so it's not enough? But it doesn't go far enough. Why? Because that's not the furthest God goes with it. It's Oh, man. <laughs> well, the Apostle Paul didn't know what he was doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he didn't bring all those other themes in when he reminded the Corinthian church of the gospel that he preached to them. One part of the story. What is your picture of what God is up to in Christ. Oh, this is where the imagination comes in. What is your understanding of the story of what God's activity is in the world? What's your gospel story? If you think Jesus died and was raised from the dead so your sins could be forgiven and that you could go to heaven someday, guess what? Really? That's wrong? Hmm. Let's see. Um, let's see. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve. So should I just go... And big X, sorry, Paul, thanks for playing, but yeah, we got some lovely parting gifts for you, but you were wrong. Fail. Gospel, you know, you know fail blog, yeah? <laughs> Gospel fail. So then the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he reminded the, first, uh, the Corinthian church what the Gospel was, failed. This was a Gospel fail on the part of Paul. If you think that Jesus died and was raised from the dead so your sins could be forgiven and you could go to heaven someday, your God is too small. That was the God that um, the Apostle Paul preached. 
Peter and John and your gospel is too small. And I got news for you. You are too small. What does size have to do with anything? He made us a little less than God's. The psalmist writes in Psalm 8. Have you considered the fact that we are sinful by nature and that we die? All creations... Because you read, read, read more of the prophets. God talking about us, by the way, and really kind of ridiculing us. You think you're little gods, you will die like men, God says. Glory, the work of his fingers, he put under our stewardship. And so the psalmist begins and ends, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Salvation is not just then and there. It is here and now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As it, Have you ever prayed that before? It doesn't sound like it. This is McLaren's gospel. We have to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Salvation is not just fall and redemption. It's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In us enlisted. Uh, when did things get restored again? So you think the gospel is not just creation, fall, redemption, but it's creation, fall, and restoration. Now, in part, you're right. Uh, but let's uh, let the apostles, the guys who hung out with Jesus... Uh, let them be the ones to determine what that looks like. Um, Second uh, Peter chapter two and three. If you have your Bibles, open up to Second Peter chapters two and three. Now he's right. There's a restoration involved, but let's find out what that looks like. <clears throat> I start in chapter two for a reason. The Apostle Paul writes. I'm sorry, not Paul, but Peter writes. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued righteous Lot and greatly distressed, uh, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially of those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. 
bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these heretics, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes that are full of adultery. Insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, and they are accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These heretics are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he has been enslaved. For if they, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled again in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Chapter 3. Pay attention. All of that was necessary. We continue. Now, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, the heavens and but by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, 
waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, yes, Tim, restoration is the other is the last and missing component of the salvation equation, if you would, the gospel equation, because it's part of the gospel restoration. But see, the restoration of the creation only comes about through death and resurrection. It's death and God raising it up. God is going to destroy everything. That's what the Apostle Peter said. Now, I understand that Peter, well, he didn't have the, um, he didn't get to go to Denver Theological Seminary. I mean, but he did know Greek, he did know the biblical languages really well, but he was a fisherman, you know, so he wasn't very, he wasn't a lettered person. And, you know, and he didn't have the, uh, you know, the, well, the ability to live in a postmodern generation. But he had this going for him. He did spend three years being taught directly by Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. And this prophecy that he's given, well, it it originates from God, not him. And so, you know, I'm going to go with the Apostle Peter that God is not restoring the earth here and now and going to make things better here and now, but that he's going to return and destroy everything, you know, just, well, by fire, as the Apostle Peter said, and that God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and that we're going to be resurrected too. You know, we're going to be restored to eternal salvation in physical bodies that are going to be like Christ's physical body. I mean, that's what the Bible says. So, yeah, restoration's a big part of the gospel, but we're waiting for something different than setting up some kind of earthly kingdom here, like as if we're the ones do, restoring and creating things with, and can just skip over this little part of the Bible. The arc of the salvation narrative is not just creation, fall, redemption, but also creation, incarnation, recreation. No, it's not. Not unless you are including the destructions of the heavens and the earth. This is the narrative. Now, the fact that I think many of us have not known this, that our people certainly do not understand this, is ironic on many levels, but at least on two. It's ironic on uh, first on this. We have made one aspect of the gospel the entire gospel and ignored the themes and the stories that Jesus himself is most into. We've made one aspect of the gospel, the entire gospel and ignored the themes and the images and the story that Jesus himself is most into. And Paul too, let me just be honest. Just one example, second Corinthians chapter five. We know it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? Fail. I mean, yes, that's the way the NIV used to translate. Has anybody read what the new, today's new international version translates it? It's much better. It's more faithful to what's happening in the text. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
Oh, really? Hang on a second here. <clears throat> New creation. Hang on a second here. I just this one. If I just read it, Second Corinthians chapter five. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is. A new creation. Hang on a second here. Um, okay, he is a new kainos. Um, okay, therefore, hosta, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has gone. Uh-huh. No, I'm not seeing... Uh, no, it... If anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. It's, it's I'm sorry, but eh, Tim, you've got the fail. You want to explain to me? I mean, basically, you have to insert the uh, the word to be here in order to make sense of the of the of this particular sentence. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. He is a new creation. Um, and let's see, feminine, uh, new. Uh, okay. Feminine singular. Yeah, he, uh, mm-hmm. The oldest, okay, nope, I'm not seeing it. We become the location of God's new unfolding activities. Revelation chapter 21. No, this is a complete, this is a complete fail on his part. And I would challenge him to show me from the Greek. Verse five, behold, I make all things new. Yeah, at the end of Revelation, after he destroys everything, he makes all things new. Right. Behold, I'm making all new things. We are the location of the restoration of creation, and we are God's agents towards that end. So it's like, oh, no, 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 this is just heresy. Ironic on the fact that we've made one aspect of the gospel, the entire gospel, and ignored the themes and the stories that Jesus is most into. Secondarily, on a missional level, folks, the world around us is consumed by the stories and themes of creation, exodus, and exile. We need a robust creation theology. It's all the questions that everybody's... Well, then why is everyone talking about evolution rather than creation? Hmm? Asking around us, what does it mean to be a human being, especially when more and more and more of our lives are being mediated by technology? This is a theme of Marxism. Sorry. uh, Yeah, this is... uh This is existentialism. What does it mean to be sexual? Anybody having that conversation? How do we understand gender in the world that we live in? What does it mean to live in relationship to the other? (laughs) Another complete liberal (laughs) postmodern theme here. Those are creation theology questions. And I think a lot of times what our default answer is, well, listen, you know what? You just need to get saved and then you'll quit asking those tough questions. Straw man, that is not true. We are desperate for a robust creation theology. People are curious about spirituality, not as a transaction, but as a journey, as a dynamic engagement, as restoration, as an awareness of the image and likeness in them, and yet a frustration at not being able to know how to access it truly. We keep making it about the transaction 
We keep making it about the proposition. There is so much more. Yeah, you know, Christ died for our sins, propitiated God's wrath, redeemed us, you know, the transaction. Yeah, shame on you for talking about the gospel that way. To the gospel than going to heaven. Heaven is not the point. It is the outcome. It is the outcome. The good news, in the full sense of that word, the good news, we are invited to join Christ on a dynamic journey and in a robust story now. Some of us, uh, we get to take up our cross and follow him. Yeah, I mean, that's what I've been taught. And I mean, that's what Jesus said. In our lives, desperately need the Exodus narrative. I don't know that there's been a time in the history of the world where more people have been captive to addictions. To journey with Christ from bondage to liberation. We are a culture of increase of increased division recognizing our differences the exile themes of reconciliation of moving moving from broken edges of alienation to a restored center of relationship is a compelling drama that characterizes the narrative of many people's lives the creation story so other people's life narratives are really what we need to be focusing the gospel. Okay, yeah. My church is filled with young people desperate to give their lives away to God's work in the world. They have a sense that the Spirit's up to something. Can we tell the story of God's creation and of the world around them as a garden that they're meant to go out as new Adams and new Eves to steward? Wow. To help these people in our lives who desperately want to gauge and are going to engage whether or not we help them to see Jesus in the midst of it or not. From alienation to participation with God in the restoration of all things. This is the new dominionism gospel, folks. And it's not the gospel. To join with God in the brokering of shalom wherever we are. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. When I was growing up, this was the traditional evangelism question. Y'all know it? If you were to die tonight, scare the crap out of people, yeah? <laughs> if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? Anybody tried that one lately? It doesn't work. Theology aside, you know what we're struggling with in our culture? The ability to make meaning of our lives. Existentialism. The ability to feel like we can participate in a narrative that's bigger than our own myopic narratives. What if the question went from if you were to die tonight, do you know where do you go to, if you knew you had 20 years to live, what kind of life would you want to live? Folks, Jesus has a compelling answer to that question. You know what he says? Wake up. 
Come and follow me. Walk with me from captivity to restoration. Walk with me from the edges of belonging to the center of God's life. Find purpose in rejoining a restored creation. Become a gardener in the good news of God's work. Wake up, come, and follow me. Amen. Thank you. Wow. Holy guacamole. Folks, that's the false postmodern gospel. In all of its wretchedness. And its attacks against what Christ did for us on the cross. Blatant. And a complete misreading and misinterpretation of the scriptures in such a way. The apostles, none of them taught this. None of them. If this is really what Christianity is about, then why didn't the apostles say this? This is what Christianity is about. Then why do we need to decode it? If this is what the gospel is really about, then why did none of the, none of the apostles of the apostles get this theme the way he did it and talk about Christianity in this way? Yes, God is going to restore the heavens and the earth by destroying the current ones and creating new ones. That's what the apostle Peter said. Who are you going to believe? The apostle Peter, Tim Keel. I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? I need to get your feedback. Would love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.